Blog Talk Radio. Enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone. Your end time watchman. Bringing you light in a dark world. Where truth is rivaled with a lie. And the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. tells us of a future invasion of Israel by a vast coalition of nations that surround it. As we read the headlines in the newspapers today and witness the conflict in the Middle East, it is not hard to imagine that this invasion prophesied over 2,600 years ago could be fulfilled in our lifetime. Ezekiel 36 through 37 predicts a gathering of the Jews to the nation of Israel, which will be followed by a massive invasion. For 19 centuries, the Jewish people were scattered throughout the world, and until May 14, 1948, there is no nation of Israel to invade. With the nation of Israel now a reality, the stage seems set for the war that will usher in the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist war that will end the destruction of Israel's enemies by God himself and lead to the destruction, uh, lead to the signing of a peace treaty, treaty with the Antichrist. As you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it isn't just the creation of the nation of Israel that makes this prophecy seem likely to be filled in the future, near future. The nations that God tells us will form this coalition against Israel seems more likely now than perhaps ever before to form just such an alliance. To understand the prophecies of Ezekiel about this future invasion, it's important to understand who the players will be. I just read a little clip to you from uh, an article that I found online called The Coming War of Gog and Magog, an Islamic Invasion by Jennifer Rast from Contenders Ministries. I want to discuss this today on As the Day Approaches. This is the third part of the Islamic Revolution, Iran, and I find it extremely important to discuss the role of Persia, which is Iran today, the, but the Persian Empire in the past has encompassed exactly a lot of the um, coalition forces that are kind of uh, developing today. 
We'll take a look at Ezekiel 38. We'll take a look at Iran. We'll take take a look of their that it, at their ambition, and we will take a look at uh, the uprisings that are happening today. We're going to talk about. Uh, we're not going to talk about in detail any uh, countries such as uh, Egypt or Syria, but we're going to have an overview. We're going to take a look at uh, what is actually happening. What, why are they doing this? What are they thinking? What is Islam's intention? And what is their future? What is our future? What is the future of Israel? What is the future? Are we living in the future? The last two shows that I've done, part one and part two, have focused on the history of Persia. And then the second one focuses up more on the history of Persia, pulling us forward to the 70, 1979 revolution with Ayatollah Khomeini. Today we're going to focus on three leaders in Iran, specifically, that are currently uh, ruling or having influence in Iran. Now, we have to ask the question, is Iran behind uh, what's happening in the Middle East? We're going to take a look at that, too. <clears throat> I'm going to start off here. We're going to focus on um, Ezekiel, and then we'll go from there. Now, Ezekiel 38.1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, prophesy against him. I'm going to go up to about 12. We'll see how far I will go. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you. I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, put, put, push, put will be with them, all of the shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togmara from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all your hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. Okay, now, I'm, <clears throat> I'm very, you know, it's important uh, to understand that the war described in Ezekiel 38 is not the same war as the one that's coming in the tribulation when Jesus refers, uh, returns to defeat the Antichrist and establish the millennial, millennial kingdom. This is extremely important because this is a war uh, that is going to destroy Israel. And now we see nations that are gathering together in our time, in our day, to um, come against Israel. Israel surrounded by enemies. And uh, we see a coalition being formed. I went map crazy today, and you can see um, on the you know the pictures that I've put up for this show there's a few maps but they did a map of Persia and then the map of the prophecies of Daniel I also uh, put up a map of the coalition of forces that are described in Ezekiel 38 I also went and and found some Islamic maps 
I found a map on the Roman Empire. And I also found a map on the Byzantine Empire. It is, it is quite amazing to me that the same area is uh, constantly uh, having uh, input and and uh, involvement as far as Bible prophecy. Now, Persia is known as the cradle of civilization. Well, actually, it's specifically in Iraq. But right now, kind of on the border between Iran and Iraq. But the Persian Empire had Iraq. And, and when you talk about uh, the Bible prophecy from that day, Persia was the only one that existed. Iraq did not. Iraq is not mentioned in this prophecy, but we know that Iraq is going to be part of it because Iraq is part of the old Roman Empire. We have to think within the realms of prophecy, biblical revelation in relation to Israel. And when we start thinking in relation to Israel, then that's when we will kind of see what uh, we have to look for. The Bible tells us to watch. Jesus told us that in these times we need to watch for the coming of the Lord. Now, it's very easy for us to make some conclusions, and sometimes our conclusions can be, you know, uh, right on, and sometimes they they sometimes are not. I prefer to watch. I prefer to lay out the information for you and help us to get an idea of it help us to see it all come together, and then for us to move in the direction that we see happening. <clears throat> I'm going to go through this art article as part of, uh, of my talk today from uh, the Contenders Ministries. I am also going to focus on some of the things that I've been reading. I want to suggest some really good reading material to you. Now, if I get bumped off here, because I've been having extremely horrible, horrible technical difficulties, not only with Block Talk Radio, but also with my own computer and my own Internet. So the combination of both has made this show a very challenging uh, production. So hopefully we'll get through today. I've put it for a couple hours just so that uh, in case we do get bumped off, I can get right back on. Uh, not necessarily that we'll go that long, but we'll see how long it will take me to uh, really give you a good idea. I hope to give you a good understanding of the history of Persia, uh, the current issues in Iran, how Iran is involved in the host scenario, what is happening happening in the Middle East, how it, it, it is bringing together Bible prophecy. These books that I'd like to suggest to you, one really good one, which is short, but it uh, gives you a good idea of the Islamic, uh, of Islamic fundamentalism is the sword of Allah by David Satan. It says, Islamic fundamentalism from an evangelical perspective. He writes a really good, concise uh, description of what um, what uh, this Islamic fundamentalism, which is driving uh, the revolution in the Middle East. Uh, and so you can 
get a copy of that. I'll be sharing some of that with you today. Also, Showdown with Nuclear Iran by Michael D. Evans with Jerome R. Corsi. And another book that I haven't read much for this show, but I, uh, you can't help to think about it, is Joel Rosenberg's Inside the Revolution, how the followers of Jihad, Jefferson, and Jesus are battling to dominate the Middle East and transform the world. Uh, there's a lot of places that I've visited as far as information, uh, so hopefully I can bring them all together for you. Ezekiel 38, 1 through 7 gives 10 names as participants in the invasion of Israel that will follow the regathering of the Jews in the homeland. Magog, first mentioned, is the land of Magog. The most common identity for Magog is in Central Asia. The Jewish historian Josephus said Magog founded the Magonians, I don't know how to say that, called Syxians by the Greeks. Scythians were a nomadic tribe who inhabited the ancient territory from Central Asia across the southern part of ancient Russia. You got to get that in mind. Today this area is inhabited by the former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and possibly northern parts of Afghanistan. All of these nations that make up the land of Magog have one thing in common, Islam. Militant Islam, which is another name for fundamentalist Islam, has been on the rise in these countries since the fall of the Soviet Union when Islam no longer had to be uh, practiced in secret. Radical Islamic groups such as the Islamic Renaissance Party, the Islamic uh, Movement of Uzbekistan, and Hits of Tafi al-Islam are working to reunite Central Asia, Asian nations, and ultimately the entire Muslim world. And that's the Hizb-Tahrir group is actually a political group that is trying to unite all the nations. Uh, is Islam. It is, it is from this part of the world that a leader will rise to bring together a great coalition of nations to invet, invade Israel. Some people think that it is the very northern part of Russia and that it's going to be uh, the leader of Russia that will come down. I really believe that it will probably be nearer to the Middle East uh, area, the Asian area. It's amazing how uh, Islam is spreading through the Asian countries as well. You don't think of Indonesia as a place where uh, Islam is actually uh, 90%. One of the maps that I put up on my uh, flipping through the show, it shows you the extent of Muslim uh, peoples how much of the country is Muslim. The Indonesian area is 90 to 100%. But that's not even going to be in Bible prophecy in that area. We're focusing more on the northern, southern part of Russia, which is also considered Asian, Afghanistan, Pakistan area. If you, now, Rosh, now, and, and this is where there's some differences in theology, 
because if you believe Ross should be translated as a proper noun, you may find the interpretation that Russia will be part of this coalition more, more reasonable. But if you believe Ross should be an adjective here, you need only to concern yourself with who Mishik and Tubal are. And who are Meshach and Tubal? Meshach and Tubal in verse 2 and 6 were the names of the sixth and fifth sons of Japheth, the son of Noah, in Genesis 10.2. Ezekiel 27.13 also mentions Meshach and Tubal as trading partners with Tyre, which, and that is modern Lebanon. It's likely that Meshach and Tubal refer to the ancient Moshi or Mushkai, and Tubal, Bala, or Tiberina, me, I don't know how to say these words, so forgive me, who dwelled in the area around primarily south of the Black and Caspian Sea in Ezekiel's day. Today, these nations would be in the modern country of Turkey, parts of, this, of southern Russia and northern Iran all areas with a Muslim majority. Verse 6 of Ezekiel 38 adds Gomer and Beth Togomara to the coalition. Gomer was the first son of Japheth. The Gomerites were the ancient Sumerians with the C. That's how it was with the in ancient C-I-M-M-E-R-I-A-N-S expelled in 700 BC from the southern steeps of Russia into what is today Turkey. Togamar, Togarma, Togarma is the third son of Gomer and Beth at the beginning of the name is the Hebrew word for house or place of. In Ezekiel's time, there was a city in Cappadocia, which is modern Turkey, known as Togarma. Tagarma, Tilgarmu, or Tekarama. The possibility that four of the names mentioned in Ezekiel are now in Turkey makes a pretty strong argument for Turkey being part of the invasion of Israel. Turkey was split up into four sections in the ancient days, and all four of those names are mentioned in Ezekiel. Current circumstances in that country also lend this view some credibility. You may think that Turkey is uh, okay as far as a Western, you know, being friends with the West. But what is happening in the Middle East is that the Islamic uh, fundamentalists who believe, and we'll, we'll go into this later, believe that. Um, the only way to bring about the coming of the Mahdi and to renew and help Islam to conquer the world is to go back to what uh, Islam was in the glory of Muhammad, which they called the golden days. That is going back to the Hadith, it's going back to the Quran, it's going back to the traditions of Muhammad and living exactly how he said. Just as we as Christians say, hey, we want to go back to uh, the early Christian church and have a model after that. This is what uh, the, the fundamentalist Islam, is, you know, um, Islamists believe. So it's not just a sect 
this is actually true, what they call true Islam. And Turkey today is not considered true Islam. It's considered secular. It's considered pandering to the West. It's, and actually, Israel has been able to take tours and vacations in uh, Turkey because they've been nice to Israel. So we need to watch Turkey because their day is coming when there will be uprisings in Turkey because they're ousting all of these secular leaders. Now, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Turkey has been gaining inroads into Central Asia, Magog. It is also linked to Central Asia, to Central Asia, both in ethnically and linguistically, and has a growing number of political parties that support opposition to Israel, establishment of a Turkish Islamic Republic, and the worldwide wide rule of Islam. So those groups are actually in Turkey right now, and they are rising in that country. And when I mention Asia, I'm not saying China, and I'm not saying India, I'm saying uh, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Okay, so when you hear the word Asia, this is what we're talking about, what I'm, what I'm talking about. Verse 5 brings three more names into the mix. God tells us that Persia, Kut, and Put will be with them. Persia is pretty, pretty easy one, and we've been talking about that. In 539 B.C., the Persians conquered the city of Babylon as in review. And you only need to look at a map of the ancient Persian Empire to see that it was centered in the nation known today as Iran. In fact, Iran was called Persia until 1935 when it was changed to Iran to befriend Hitler with the Iranian race or the Aryan race because they believe that they are the Aryan race, the perfect race. Uh, so that's what uh, uh, the Persians feel about themselves, and that's what they're called. So, And that's where Hitler actually got his, um, his ideas or ideolo ideology. And so to uh, befriend or to connect with Germany, in 1935 they changed their name to Iran as part of the coalition with Germany. And then today, after the 1979 revolution, it was changed to the Islamic Republic of Iran. It is no secret that Iran is an arch enemy of Israel. Of course, we've, we're hearing what is coming out of Iran with uh, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the leaders, uh, Ayatollah, Khamenei, which is different than Khomeini, who is the supreme leader, and also a lot of their scholars and leaders are preaching against Israel, who are saying Israel is um, supposed to not exist. They want him off the face of the earth. Hezbollah and um, Hezbollah and uh, what's the other one? <laughs> to the Hamas are actually groups that are created, have been created by Iran. Al-Qaeda was created by Osama bin Laden. And um, they are actively working to get other Arab countries to change camps in their cooperation with the U.S. and the West. And we see that in Egypt, we see that in Syria, we see that in Jordan, we see that in Morocco, 
which uh, the king of Morocco is actually a reformist uh, of you know trying to make a Western society in their country. Uh, Morocco is not part of this co coalition, but it's quite interesting. We see this in Libya, and we see this in about 12 other countries. <clears throat> Bahrain, Yemen, Qatar, the United Arab Emigrants, Oman, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya. Those are all these countries that are in uprising right now. The ancient kingdom of Cush in Ezekiel's time was the land south of Egypt on the Nile River. Today, this land is occupied by Sudan. Sudan is the home to the National Islamic Front, is ruled by Islamic military dictatorship, a strong supporter of Iraq, home of Osama bin Laden from 1991 to 1996, most people don't know that, and harbors countless Islamic terrorist groups. Sudan would easily fit into the coalition as it is already close allies with Iran, trading military supplies for docking rights on the Red Sea shipping routes. And also, uh, it is, includes Ethiopia. Ancient Put was the land just west of Egypt, or what is today Libya. Libya is another sponsor of terrorism and openly refuses to recognize Israel's right to even exist. When the coalition against Israel is formed, Libya won't have to be asked twice to join, but makes you wonder why they're throwing off uh, Gaddafi, but I know that answer. Um, Gaddafi is secular. He is not a true Islamic leader. He is not pandering to the West. He did for a while. After uh, we bombed him in 1986, the United States bombed him in 1986, he has been developing more positive relationships with the West. This has infuriated a lot of the Islamic nations. Not only that, is that he has actually adapted uh, to what they consider um, idol worship. Uh, he is actually fulfilling his own desires, not the desires of Allah. And he does not believe in the caliphate and the rule of a caliphate because he wants the kingly power and role. That is what is setting the Islamic nations off and they want him out. They want to replace him with some, someone who will believe in the rule of the Islamic Caliphate. Ancient Put was the land between east of Egypt, west of Egypt, sorry, west of Egypt, or what is today Libya, okay? And many peoples with you, that would include uh, the king of the south, which is Egypt, the king of the north, and we have to think of Israel as the center center of that picture when Daniel 11 says the king of the south, the king of the north. It all has to do with Israel from Israel's perspective and where Israel is located. The king of the north is Syria. The king of the south is uh, Egypt. Uh, it doesn't mention Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, 
Omar, all, none of them, but it says the many peoples with you. So there's going to be a lot more with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 6 adds, as many peoples with you, the nations listed, uh, listed specifically are somewhat distant from Israel. By adding um, and many peoples with you, God may have been indicating that those nations and peoples in closer proximity to Israel will join the jihad. Other nations might join the alliance are Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. All of them are Islamic nations, and all of them would not hesitate to support the destruction of Israel were the opportunity, were the opportunity uh, to join such a vast coalition presented them, and this is what is going on. The reason God gives us for the enemy's invasion of Israel are further proof that the attack will be an Islamic invasion. The first reason God gives for the invasion in Ezekiel 38 is a desire for the coalition to cover the Jewish land and wipe them off the face of the earth. Urged on by a hatred of Jewish people, they will seek to destroy them and the nation of Israel. This is the stated goal today of almost every Islamic nation in the Middle East. The only nations not currently in declared state of war with Israel is Turkey. Egypt has declared war on Israel since the revolution, which a lot of people think the democratic revolution. Understanding Islam is so important because understanding Islam, if you would understand Islam, they do they do not believe in democracy. They will use democracy of the West in order to gain control and power. And once they have the control and power, just like they did in Lebanon, they will crush the other powers underneath them and they will make it an Islamic state. That is just how they are. Jordan is now who was now favorable to Israel, is now declaring war on Israel. God, the second reason God tells us that they will also come to see is plunder and to capture great spoil. Many verses in the Quran advocate plundering for the benefit of Islam, and there are several instances of this war tactic throughout the history of Muhammad's life. In fact, it's, common, it's a common theme in his teachings. This invasion of Israel and attack on the Jewish people will indeed be a jihad. It will be a great jihad. Ezekiel 38, 13, Sheba, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture a spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver or gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? As this invasion develops, a few a few countries will make a, a, a land protest. And I'm not, you know, <clears throat> this isn't hard to believe when you look at the uh, dif indifference most nations display as Israel is repeatedly attacked by terrorists. The specific nations who question God's actions are Sheba and Didan and the merchants of Tarshish. Sheba and Didan are not hard to identify. These were ancient names for what is known today as Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia has been playing on both sides of the uh, the fence. They want to keep their reign 
they want to keep the the uh relationship with the west but they tell their own people they tell their own the islamic radical um islamic radicals or the i don't call them radicals because they're actually islamic fundamentalists they believe exactly what the quran is telling them so i don't believe that there is actually a specific difference uh between the radicals and fundamentalism and radicals makes it only seem like a little sect uh that a little group of islam that has kind of gone off the wall which is not true it's what they consider true islam anyway what saudi arabia is saying to uh these these islamic peoples is that they they're actually supporting and funding much of the terrorism so it's like they're playing both sides Tarsus is not commonly agreed to be ancient Tartissus, or, or is most commonly agreed to be ancient Tartissus, or the area of present-day Spain in Western Europe. Now, in the uh, when Islam in the days of Muhammad, he actually uh, Spain was actually part of the Islamic Empire back in the 600. 622 BC when it, the Islam conquered uh, a lot of nations and the empire grew. Spain was included with that. In Ezekiel's days, Tarshish was in the farthest west regions of the known world. By referring to Tarshish and all her merchant, merchants, Ezekiel could have been indicating that Western Europe will join with Saudi Arabia in denouncing the invasion. Interestingly, in, Interestingly, Saudi Arabia is only Arab, is the only Arab nation to consistently side with the West against the radical Islamic elements around the world. The royals of Saudi Arabia most, mostly side with the West out of an interest in self-preservation and at times oppose us behind the scenes. But they would most probably put on a show of opposition to radical fundamentalist Islam in order to maintain the support of Western governments. The good news is that God wins and will come against invaders himself and destroy them. Verse 19 and 20 say that there will be an earthquake so great that the people over the all of the world will tremble. In the ensuing chaos, nations will begin to turn on each other. The confusion will lead to the largest case of death by friendly fire ever seen. Verse 22 of Ezekiel, which we did not read, but you can read it on your own, tells us that there will be plagues, torrents, rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur. Just as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he will destroy these invading forces. Once again, God will make it known to all the nations that he is the Lord. He will give the nations proof that he is the Holy One of Israel. Now this war will be well, against Israel will pave the way for the Antichrist's military rule over the world and his demand that the world worship him as God. And I could not have said it better than she has said it. Uh, Jennifer Ross in Contenders Ministries, you can get this. You can get the article from there. She has said it said it well, and I, uh, I'm grateful to how she has put that together. 
now why are we going to focus on Iran when the coalition has all these forces? And it seems like the one that will come down to lead the armies is not necessarily out of Iran. Iran has great significance because it's part of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire has always had a significant role in Bible prophecy. Ruth, the, the book of, uh, sorry, not the book of Ruth, the book of Esther was in, it was in Iran, in Persia, might be on the border of Iraq. Tower of Babel was in this area. The seat of civilization is also in the Persian Empire. The Garden of Eden is said to be in the Persian Empire. Noah built the Ark in the Persian Empire the Mesopotamian Empire. Abraham was from Ur, which is in the southern part of Iraq right now, but it was in the Persian Empire. Iraq was all in the Persian Empire, and we're going back to the Persian Empire in order to understand uh, why Iran, Persia, is having such great influence. Jonah preached in, in Nineveh, Iraq today, but part of the Persian Empire. And I'm going to read off more of what used to be the Persian Empire. Some of it's going to be in Iraq, some of it's going to be in Iran. But Iraq is kind of, you know, in the middle stages of developing uh, a country. And Iran would not have any problems taking over that country. So we'll see what the future will reveal for that. Jacob met uh, Rachel in Persia. Uh, Jonah preached to Nineveh. Assyria, which is in Iraq, it was in the Persian Empire. Amos cried out in in Persia. Babylon was in Iraq, but also was part of the Persian Empire. Persia conquered Babylon. Daniel was in Persia in the lion's den. Three Hebrew, you know, uh, Meshach, uh, <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was in Persia in the fire furnace. Belteshazzar was the ki the king of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. He was like a grandson, and he saw the writing on the wall. That was actually Iraq. Uh, well, it wasn't ever called Iraq back then, uh, and that's when. The Persian Empire came that night after the writing on a wall and conquered that city. Uh, Ezekiel preached in Persia. The wise men were from Persia. And there's just a lot of things that involved Persia. So there is no surprise that it will be rising again today. While most Christians, unfortunately, have seemingly come to terms with the secular liberal paradigm of contemporary society, fundamentalist Muslims have embarked on a process to roll secularism, integrate faith and politics, and reinstate Islam as the dominant force in their societies and states. And this is what they're doing. Their goal is to emulate the early model of worldwide Muslim dominance in both politics and culture. 
Since Muslim, Muslim decline is blamed on any deviation from the purity of original Islam, all systems not based on strict Islamic principles are considered evil, corrupt, apostate, and deserving destruction. If only followers, it only follows the use of force as seen as a legitimate and perfectly justifiable means to attain their goals. Now, taken from the book Nuclear Showdown in Iran uh, by uh, Michael D. Evans, Sheikh Abdul Rahman says, quote, <clears throat> known as the blind sheikh, if you remember who he was, he was actually killed by Israel, and his radical Muslim brotherhood said this, Khomeini, this is the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, had predicted that the first Shah of Iran, Mohammed which his name was Muhammad, by the way, Reza Shah Pahlavi would be dethroned, an Islamic revolution would be birthed in Iran, and then the Soviet Union would fall. This would be followed by the collapse of Saddam, Saddam Hussein's regime, and his country would be burned by fire. Next would come the annihilation of Israel and the collapse of the United States. Abdul believed he had been chosen by Allah to prepare the way for the age of the Mahdi when Shia Islam would spread across the world to destroy other apostate religions. At last, he said, I am preparing the way. And Abdul rejoiced. Abdul, a Shiite, believed in the second coming of the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, who disappeared centuries ago down a well in Qam, Iran. Qam, Iran is a very an important place in Iran, as many Shiite scholars come out of that that uh, city. Also, the supreme leader Ayatollah Khomeini is from Qom. Qom is located north of Iran near the Caspian Sea, and in uh, not too far from the city of Tehran, which is uh, the capital of Iran. This messianic vision that uh, required a world apocalypse to bring his return, that's the apocalypse that is predicted to come before the coming of the Mahdi. If an uh, Abdul said, if, the, if the, an apocalypse would usher in the Mahdi, then we will shut the mouth of Satan for all eternity. Now, this was all said by Khomeini before Saddam Hussein had been attacked by the United States and before he was judged, by, judged and condemned. Now, they, the Islamic reformers, demanded a return to the Muslim source scriptures, the Quran, seen as God's written revelation through Muhammad, and the Sunnah, seen as divinely inspired traditions of the prophet's sayings and deeds, and to the early model of the first community, as well as the purification of Islam from later additions, traditions, and superstitions. So any Islam, anyone from Islam that is actually adding things that are not uh, true to the Quran, like forgetting jihad, like getting rid of jihad, like a, like uh, not proclaiming good, uh, Islam and uh, preaching the Quran, uh, adding traditions and superstitions um, that would be um, there's a mystical, mystical side of Islam that 
that would be considered in this section. Uprisings in the Middle East and Africa are not an act of democracy. I'm going to say that again. It's not an act of democracy, but a move to destabilize the area in order to create an Islamic state. That's what they're doing. They're destabilizing the states in the Middle East. And who is behind it? It is Iran, because that's exactly what they want to do. That's exactly what they are promoting. That's exactly what they are funding, a destabilization of the Middle East. And to do it, to build an Islamic coalition here within, you know, the cleaning house, you know, here within the Islamic states, and then they're going to unite and conquer the rest of the world. In his book, Sword of Allah, David Zayden said this, secularized Muslims are viewed as anti-Islamic foreign agents. Islamic fundamentalists see an evil trinity of secularism, the Christian West, and Jewish Zionism coming to destroy Islam. Rulers in Muslim states friendly to the West are perceived as puppets of these enemies, betraying their countries into, the, into dependence and secularization. This is how they view those countries that are actually uh, befriending the West. <clears throat> now let's take a look back. We're going to take a little bit look jog to, to, to some history now. And we're going to take a look back at of what, how they think. It is important to know how Muslims think, especially as fun, you know how the fundamentalists think. I have a degree in cross-cultural studies, and I find it extremely important to know how uh, the mind of a certain religion or a certain group thinks and what they believe and how they act and what they do. Um, uh, anthropology, things like that, so that we can understand what they're actually doing on the surface. Now, fairly mo modern phenomena started in the 1920s with the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Islamic fundamentalists aimed at bringing all of society under God's sovereignty, rule, and law. Those who embrace this movement believe that the restoration of Islamic glory will be achieved by purifying society from non-Islamic teachings and practices, returning to Islam's original pure sources as the only authority, and by the establishment of an ideal Islamic state modeled on that of Muhammad and his companions. Fundamentalists aim at Islamicizing the total social and political systems of their societies at and at establishing a worldwide Islamic state based on Sharia, the all-encompassing law based on the Quran and Sunnah, and claimed to be ordained by God for humans. Islamic fundamentalists view secularism as a rebellion against God and his law. And they see the secularist separation of religion from politics as a Western imposition foreign to the spirit of Islam. Both must be resisted at all costs. All modern societies, Muslim and otherwise, are examined in this light and found wanting, corrupted by Western secularism, materialism, and secular permissiveness. These influences are credited 
with causing the modern explosion in crime and breakdown of morality and the family. Fundamentalists condemn the passivity of traditional Islam and challenge all true Muslims to sacrificial activism in order to roll back secularism and restore pure religion to God-ordained position as first demonstrated during the golden age of Muhammad and his immediate followers. Now, I'm taking this out of the nuclear showdown with Iran. Very interesting information as it continues. For fundamentalists, God, represented by the Islamic system, must be at the center of the whole universe, including politics and the public arena. As a result, fundamentalism transforms religion into a political ideology that pits the have-nots of the Muslim world against an oppressive world order demanding economic and social justice and the establishment of an Islamic state in which God's law reigns supreme. In this sense, Islamism is a revolution ideology. Fundamentalists see the state as the main instrument for implementing a God-pleasing society under Sharia. What that means is that the state, the nation, the government, the seat of government is what implements or is the is instrument for implementing a God-pleasing society. In other words, any country that does not have Sharia, does not implement the laws of Sharia from the seat of government, is is an is uh, not a God pleasing society. And so they concentrate their efforts on capturing the state and its centers of power, either legally with the democratic framework, or violently by revolution or coup d'état. We see. The coup d'etat, we see both of these things in Egypt. The coup d'etat was the, what would happen in Egypt. They said, get out of, the, get out of uh, power of Mubarak. And Mubarak knows the Muslim Brotherhood. He knows uh, the fundamentalist ideology. He knows all that because he was there when... Uh, Sadat was assassinated by the Muslim Brotherhood. He was uh, in uh, Albania and uh, Qutub. Those two are leaders, Islamic leaders. They were killed by Nasser and Sadat. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has been illegal for centuries in Egypt. This is where it was created and founded. And when they were demanding him to get out of power, because they put him in power in the beginning, he wanted his life, and so he he left. Okay, and so you see the coup d'etat. Violent, violently in revolution, you see in Gaddafi in Libya. And in order to establish the caliphate, which is part of it, the Islamic powers that are going to come against uh Israel, you know, one of the nations that are going to come against Israel, they must take Libya back for the Islamic regime or the, the Quran, the Mohammedites. Um, since most Muslims, well, <clears throat> excuse me, any society not accepting Sharia is declared illegitimate and becomes a target of indiscriminate revolutionary violence aimed at replacing it with the Sharia system. Since most Muslim societies and states are seen as having reverted to paganism 
or pre-Islamic time jahilala, which is the ignorance of divine guidance, radicals feel all obliged to examine and judge governments. institutions and individuals declaring them apostate and non-Muslim because they do not live by God's rules. Holy war, jihad, which in traditional Islam was waged mainly against non-Muslims, is thus being justified against fellow Muslims who do not accept radical views on religion and state. These Muslims are seen as deserving the death penalty for apostasies apostasy, thereby justifying the assassination of rulers and other public figures deemed non-Muslims. Now, deemed non-Muslims is according to what they consider being Muslim. This is what lies behind the terrorist efforts aimed at destabilizing regimes in Muslim states. Such regimes are seen as enemies of God and taking power by forces considered necessary to impose the Islamic system on the populations of those states. We see the examples now of this in Europe. While most Muslims in the West aimed at integration within their host societies and enjoy the democratic freedoms of economic opportunities offered them, Islamic fundamentalists press for more. Typically, they demand state recognition of their status as a separate religious community with the right to conduct its own internal religious, educational, and family affairs by Sharia law. And they aggressively encourage other Muslims to do the same. They claim that Muslims cannot truly follow all the precepts of their religion in a secular society, and they see the constitution of a separate state-recognized community as an important step toward Islamicizing their host states. You've got to listen to this carefully because this is what is happening in Europe. This is what's going to happen in the United States, is that not only do they demand their own communities and their own laws, their intention and their uh, mission is to uh, is to Islamicize their host state. A lot of uh, radicals, even Al-Qaeda, which uh, is Osama bin Laden, went to Western states. A lot of these radical leaders will come to the West to uh, have the freedom that they do not have in their own countries of uh, the computer, of building coalitions. Uh, so we have a lot of cells here in the United States and in Europe who are actually working against us, using our technology, using all that we have, our freedoms and everything, to in order to uh, set up uh, states that, um, you know, to set up a power that will eventually conquer us. They're first going to conquer their own Islamic states that are, are against uh, the caliphate, and then they're going to come after the West. And and their their whole ideal is to, to destroy uh, the United States and then Israel, or vice versa. doesn't matter. <clears throat> they do not like the West. They claim that Muslims cannot truly really follow all the precepts. Um, the radicals take it one step further by pronouncing jihad as a God-ordained method of eliminating enemies and spreading the dominance of Islam. Terrorism against unbelieving regimes is part of a campaign for bringing all political power into Muslim hands and setting up a one-world Islamic state. 
is the reason why they do these things. It is important to realize that contrary to the many mollifying statements issued by Western leaders following the September 11 terrorist attacks, Islamic fundamentalists is, is neither an aberration of some peaceful, true Islam, nor a marginalized fringe group of lunatic Muslims who are not true Muslim at all, but an integral part of contemporary Islam with deep roots in Islamic history and theology. It's very important to understand that this, this is not a side group. This is true Islam. This is what they're calling true Islam. The nuclear thrust in Iran, the nuclear, the, how Ahmadinejad is wanting to uh, have nuclear energy, they're just using that to gain uh, nuclear power, nuclear forces, in order to destabilize the rest of these Islamic countries who are not really kind of coming into their fold. It will be a bullying uh, pulpit. They already are, and they are behind a lot uh, of the destabilization that you're seeing right now because they are funding all these groups to cause chaos within the countries in which they are located. Now Khomeini's prophecy was fulfilled and <clears throat> he made it clear that he, he could envision a world without America, is what Khomeini said, and he stood behind the slogan, Death to America, Khomeini's vision derived from the prophetic words uh, that were, you know, his own prophetic words. And those who are leaders of Iran, such as Ahmadinejad, uh, follow his prophecies. After they envision the prophecy, after they're seeing that the prophecies are now have now come to pass. It has inspired them and strengthened them to think the rest are going to come to pass as well. Since the Shah fell and then Saddam Hussein fell, then it gives legitimacy to what um, Ayatollah Khomeini said. All of which, you know, Ahmadinejad believes that all that, that of Khomeini's prophecies will soon be fulfilled. He is an adamant about this. And he said, when the dear, and this is what Ahmadinejad said, when the dear Imam Khomeini said that the Shah's regime must go and that we demand a world without dependent governments, many people who claim to have political knowledge and other knowledge asked, is it possible that the Shah's regime can be toppled? That day when Khomeini began, when began his movement, all the powers supported the Shah's corrupt regime and said it was not possible. However, our nation stood firm, and by now we have, for 27 years, been living with a government dependent on America. Imam Khomeini said the rule of the East, USSR, but the weak people thought only the tiny world near them did not believe it. Nobody believed that he would one day witness the collapse of the Eastern Imperial. It would fall as well, and they fell without even. And, and uh, Ahmadinejad continues and said it was an iron regime. But in our short lifetime, we have witnessed how this regime collapsed in such a way that we must look for it in libraries. And we can and can 
no literature, find no literature about it. Imam couldn't mean that Saddam Hussein must go and that he would be humiliated as he would live for eternity is today chained by the feet and is now being tried in his own country. Ahmadinejad said this when uh, when uh, Saddam Hussein was getting um, when he was on trial by the United States. And that's when he said that. And this is actually the Islamic uh, uh, what do you call it? Islamic um, mission, Islamic uh, uh, power, the Islamic influence uh, of the coming of the Almighty. We're going to go there into Akhmadinejad a little bit in just a minute, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about the Iranian uh, Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Sayyid Ali Khamenei. He was born in Mashhad, Khorasan. The province of Iran in 1939. He is still alive today, and he is still the supreme leader of this country. the The place that he came from is in the northern section of Iran, closer to the Afghan border, uh, and right on the edge of uh, one of the stands, the Uzbekistan uh, countries, or Tajikistan. But Afghanistan and Pakistan are nearby where he was born. Um, he began religious studies before completing his elementary education, and he settled in Quam in 1958, Quam where many people study true Islam. The town lies on both banks of the Rudokam beside the Salt Desert, and it, like I said before, it is near Tehran. It's 90 miles, 92 miles exactly south of Tehran. Now, the older Persian province of Khorasan includes parts which are today in Iran. And uh, some of the main historical sites of Persia are located also in older Khorasan. Now, in, in, to, to give you an idea of what, how important Qom is, uh, one of the, it's a center of Shiism in the 8th century, in eight, 816, Fatima, the sister of the imam, leader of the Shiite Islam, Ali Ariya, died in that town and was buried there. It became a place of pilgrimage in the 17th century when the Safavid rulers built a golden dome shrine over, the, over Fatima's tomb. The modern city was the largest madrasha, theological college in the country, or has the largest madrasha. Fatima is a very important person. It means shining one, also spelled Fatima, also called Al-Sahrab. She was born in 605 in Mecca, Arabia, now in Saudi Arabia, and she is the daughter of Muhammad, the founder of Islam. You'll hear Fatima spoken of a lot in Islam, and so it's pretty important to understand who she is. She, in later centuries, became the object of deep veneration by many Muslims, especially the Shiites. And Muhammad had other sons and daughters, but none, none of them became prominent. And they either died young or failed to produce a long 
line of descendants. Fatima, however, stood at the head of the genealogy and, and steadily enlarged two generations. To the Shiites, she is particularly important because she was married to Ali, whom the Shiites considered to be the legitimate heir of the authority of the Prophet Muhammad and the first of the Imams. The son of Fatima and, and Ali Asan are thus viewed by the Shiites as the rightful inheritors of the tradition of Muhammad. A further ramification of Fatima's significance among Shiite believers. Now, accordingly, many Islamic traditions give a majestic, if not a miraculous, qualities to Fatima's life. Fatima accompanied Muhammad when he migrated from Mecca to Medina in 622. And soon after her arrival in Medina, she was married to Ali, the prophet's cousin. Their first years lived in they lived in abject poverty. When in 632, Muhammad was facing his last illness, and by the way, his last illness was what killed him. And it's kind of ironic because he died of being poisoned by a Jew, who a, a woman who. After he had plundered the city and killed her family, her her husband and her brother or whatever, and then wanted her for wanted her for his wife, she off well she offered to save her life by um, fixing him some lamb, and she poisoned it, and it took him a couple months of illness, and he died from that. Anyway, Fatima um, was true to there to nurse him. In general, she was devoted to her domestic duties and avoided involvement in political affairs. Yet after Muhammad's death, she had a sharp clash with Abu Bakr, who had succeeded Muhammad as leader. And there you see the division between Sunni and, and Shiite. Um, and there is a, uh, a division... to submit to Bakar's authority. She came into conflict with the caliph and, and a second time over a property that she claimed uh, was, uh, she claimed that was, um, according to, you know, was hers. Now, Fatima refused to speak to him until her death from from illness six months later. So she did not live very long, but she had great significance, and a lot of Shias will go back to Fatima. So if you hear of her, it is uh, Muhammad's daughter that has great significance. Now, Khomeini attended the classes of Ayatollah Khomeini and another radical Shia leader, Burush Shurdi, I don't know how to say his name. Um, <clears throat> and he also teaches in the... Uh, schools of Nashad, and he also teaches in different mosques. In January 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini appointed Khomeini as a member of the Revolutionary Council, and in March of the same year, in a collaboration with the four brothers, established the Islamic Republic Party. Now, Ayatollah Khomeini appointed him in 1980 to be the leader of the Friday Congregational Prayers in Tehran, and following the President Ma Mohammad Raji's assassination in 1981, Khamenei was elected president of the Islamic Republic with 95% of the votes 
cast in his favor, and he was president for four years. He was elected to a second term in 1985. In 1989, a day after the Grand Ayatollah Khamenei died, Khamenei was voted the supreme leader of Iran by Iran's Council of Experts, the Theological School of Qom. Khamenei, much like his predecessor, has taken a hard line with regard to Western democracies. He refers to the United States as the great Satan and is often critical of U.S. policies and messages abroad. Khamenei also has accused the West of many plots against Iran. In his own words, and this is taken from the Israel's Project for Freedom, Security, and Peace, Khamenei says these things. In fact, quote, Quote, in fact, the death to America that is chanted by our people is similar to the phrase, I seek the protection of Allah against the cursed Satan, which is recited at the beginning of each Quranic chapter before, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, which they say every time they say his name. Continuing, this is what Khamenei is saying. What is the reason for seeking the protection of Allah from the cursed Satan? It is for the believers not to forget the presence of, of the Satan, not to forget even for a single moment that the Satan is ready to attack them and destroy the spiritual fortifications that protect their belief. We are that Satan. He says, some, and again he says this, the Islamic Republic of Iran has made its own decision and, is, is, and in the nuclear case, God willing will, with patience and power, will continue its path. They're determined to get nuclear weapons. That's exactly what they want to do. Khamenei, quote, we adhere to our ambitions and to our national interests. Whoever threatens our interests will see the sharp wrath of his people. And then the crowd, and he was speaking to a crowd when he said that, and they said, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. Khamenei is leader. Death to those who reject the rule of jurisprudence. Death to America, death to England, death to hypocrites and Sodom, death to Israel. He again says, you will never be able to guarantee the safe supply of energy in this region. We adhere to our ambitions and to our national interests. Whoever threatens our interests will feel the sharp wrath of this people. So what they're talking about there, and why, where this quote came out of, is the talk on nuclear weapons. Actually, he was referring to nuclear energy, which they, Iran has been um, put on the danger list for nuclear. You know, it's not just the United States are saying it; it's the other countries that are also saying that Iran should not have nuclear energy or power. That victory of Hamas in the parliamentary election of Palestine was a sweet surprise and sign of God's promise coming true. And Hamas is in Gaza. Who, so they are supporting Hamas. They actually created Hamas and they uh, fund Hamas. So Iran was excited to see that Hamas got Gaza. The expansion of relations between Iran and Turkey has enemies and these are the Zionists and the Americans. Now, Turkey played a good role concerning the issue on Gaza, and the Turkish Prime Minister, Mr. Eg, I don't know how to say the name, Erdogan's attempt in the Davos conference was a very good job, but 
Yeah, and he he is saying this, the expansion of relationship between Iran and Turkey. So Iran is actually expanding the relationships with Turkey. So watch this. Watch this very carefully. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. We know, you know, I don't know how many people know a lot about him, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a populist hardliner. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has often courted controversy since becoming the sixth president of the Islamic Republic of Iran in 2005. His strong rhetoric against the United States and Israel and unbending stance on Iran's nuclear program has proved popular at home, but enraged the West. And that's not in just the United States, it's been Europe as well. In 2009, international criticism intensified when he his re-election re was kind of, uh, they say that was uh, set up, but he is one that was elected by the leaders, uh, the spiritual leaders of the land. Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Ali Khamenei, who has the final say in matters of state, declared the vote valid so that Mr. Ahmadinejad could be sworn in for a second term. So they were the ones that actually put him in the, the first time and the second time. He was the son of a blacksmith. Mr. Ahmadinejad was born in 1956 in Garzmar near Tehran and holds a Ph.D. in traffic and transport from Tehran's University of Science and Technology, where he was a lecturer. So he doesn't really have, like, great credentials for being the president, but he, um, what, he has something that the leaders of Iran want, and that is he has a vision of the Al-Bandi, the second coming of, or the, 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 not the second coming, the, the coming of the Messiah. And he feels that he is the prophet that is coming before the Almighty, and that his work, if he should create chaos in order to bring about the coming of the Almighty, he he feels that that if that is the only thing he does in his life, that would be good enough. And then he was appointed mayor of Tehran. Tehran in 2003, and he wasn't well known then. Uh, so Tehran is a pretty big city, and that's kind of interesting that he became a mayor in 2003 when he wasn't well known. And while he was running in that city, he reduced social freedoms, uh, reduced social freedoms, and curtailed many of the reforms introduced by more moderate figures who ran the city before him. So he did a lot of, he made Tehran go backwards a little bit. <clears throat> uh, Ahmadinejad has been a strong backer of Iran's nuclear program, obviously. And Mr. Ahmadinejad reportedly spent no money on his first presidential campaign in 2005, but he was backed by powerful conservatives who used their network of mosques to mobilize support for him. He also had the support of a group of younger second-generation revolutionaries known as the Abagaran, or developers, who are strong in the Iranian parliament, the Majlis. The campaign focused on poverty, social justice, and the distribution of wealth inside Iran. you got to hear that again. The campaign focused on poverty, social justice, and the contribution of wealth in Iran. 
He also repeatedly defended his country's nuclear program, which worried the U.S. and the Europeans. Of course, we are you. Okay. In June 2010, when the UN Security Council voted in favor of fresh sanction against Iran over its nuclear program, he said that they should be thrown in the dustbin like a used handkerchief. And he, uh, Iran fully intends to complete its quest for nuclear weapons and may plan its attack against American interests to preempt any attempts to destroy its nuclear reactors. The materials used in the, the Katyusha uh, rockets was the same materials used in the suicide bombers backpack, just uh, just in larger quantities, and they they're actually uh, producing their own uranium. They, Russia helped them to build their own um, help them to build their uh, sites for them, so that they can build it on their own land. That's exactly what they wanted to do: is to be able to, to produce, you know. Be in production of Iranian um, uranium on their own soil so that they could have control of it. He has called for an end to the Israeli state and has described the Holocaust as a myth, and we've heard that a lot. In October 2005, Ahmadinejad made a statement in which he envisioned the replacement of Israel with a Palestinian state. Now, did you hear that? He, he envisioned a replacement of Israel with a Palestinian state. So they do not want to have a Palestinian state side by side with Israel. They want to make the Palestinian state Israel. I mean, yeah, they want to get rid of Israel and replace it with the Palestinian state. And they will have, they will not like anything less. Um, when he said that they should be wiped off the face of the earth, the map, or the uh, wiped off the, the map, this was not his own words. He was quoting Ayatollah Khomeini from the 1979 revolution. We think that those are his own words, but they are not. During a speech at the UN in April 2009, he commented that Israel was a state founded on racist principles and that's when we had that outburst that prompted a walkout by delegates from at least 30 countries, but earned him a hero's welcome on his return home. His own country was uh, welcoming him in as a hero in saying that, if you can remember that speech. I do not think the UN would do that today. I think the UN is, has been and will be against Israel and it's getting more aggressive towards Israel. We have to understand something about Iran. Very, very important. Did you know that they are the inventors of the game of chess? And we should never forget that the Persians invented this game. And they are using their way of thinking, they're using this kind of in intelligence to manipulate in order to checkmate the world. The intent of the Ayatollah Khomeini is for the Iranians to lay the global chess match of diplomacy. 
summits and international talks that there is nothing the United States or Israel can do to stop them from developing nuclear weapons until it is too late. By claiming that Iran wanted nuclear power only for peaceful purposes, such as energy and medical research, Khomeini realized that West, the West would be thrown into confusion. The strategy of Iran put in place was brilliant. By remaining a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the MPT, Iran could claim a right to pursue nuclear fuel for peaceful purposes. The lie would not be discovered until it was too late. From the beginning, Ayatollah Khamenei had calculated that his radical revolutionaries would ultimately be able to checkmate the world. Shiite Muslims believe that the 12th Imam or the Mahdi, the last in the line of the saints descended from Ali, the founder of their sect, banished on a well in 941 AD. According to their belief, he went into a state of occultation, like the sun being hidden behind the clouds. After a stormy period of apocalyptic wars, the clouds will part, and the sun, the Mahdi, will be revealed. They believe that when he is released from his imprisonment, the entire world will submit to Islam. This belief is the driving force behind Ahmadinejad, Ayatollah Khamenei, and the majority of the central figures in the Iranian government. Ahmadinejad then turns to his recent UN address, and he says this, quote, on the, on the last day when I was speaking, one, one of our group told me that when I started to say, Bishmullah Muhammad, he saw a green light come from around me, and I was placed inside this aura, he says. I felt it myself. I felt that the atmosphere suddenly changed and that those, that those 27 or 28 minutes, all the leaders of the world did not blink. When I say they did not move an eyelid, I am not exaggerating. They were looking as if they, the hand was holding them there, and they just opened their eyes, had just opened their eyes. He said this in front of a group of people. When he said he was speaking at a conference, he, he felt this aura and the spiritual presence that actually uh, went over the people, kind of the same kind of thing that probably went over the people of Hitler. Ahmadinejad, the point of me saying that, thinks he is on a spiritual, or believes, not thinks, he believes he is on a spiritual mission to um, establish the coming of the Al-Mahdi. And unlike Russia, who really, as a, as a people and as a country, want to live, Iran does not have that ambition. They believe dying, Islam believes dying is justified and is their goal. Dying is their goal for salvation. Dying will instant, instantly get them a seat in the, their kingdom, into heaven, into the presence of Allah, and into his favor. So unlike Russia, who, you know, had nuclear weapons, but they want to live, Iran, when they have nuclear weapons, and they are making them, and they will have them, they don't care if they die. They don't care because they feel that this is actually part of their mission as a country.
Now, the world may assure is that here's the president of Iran talking about the return of the Mahdi. Just a bunch of religious foolishness? No. To him, it is truth, and he is dead serious about it. Not only does he, Ahmadinejad, believe it, but the tens of thousands of mullahs controlling ancient Persia believe it also. It is their mission from God. This is their role in all of this. This is their mission, and I believe their mission is far more prominent than we can see or we can understand. So this is why we need to watch, and this is why we need to know, and why we need to hear. Ahmadinejad is without question fueled by messianic religious fervor. He has rekindled revolutionary fires long extinguished. He believes that Iran's redemption will come through a combustible mix 